This is Trevor, and for myself, Lauren, and Leo, welcome to episode 215. This time around, you are joined by filmmaker Vaughn Stein and actors India Isley and Sam Claflin. At time of release, their fantastic new thriller, Every Breath You Take, is in select theaters and premium VOD now. You'll spend time with each one of them separately as they let you into the world of tension they created. They'll talk all about the mechanics of conveying mystery and the experience of their performances. We'll also take a look at some of their other work, including Vaughn's film Inheritance, Sam's incredible turn in Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale, and India Isley's mind-bending Look Away, her stint as a vampire-lichen hybrid in Underworld, and much more. Episode 215 starts now. Dr. Clark, my best friend. She's dead. Where are you? Somebody hit her with a car. Daphne, listen to me. I know what you're afraid of. I'm not like that anymore. Stay where you are. Oh, my God. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio is an incredible and award-winning actor who cut his teeth at Theatre Royal in Norwich before earning a degree at London's world-famous Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. He made his debut in the Emmy-winning and Golden Globe-nominated miniseries The Pillars of the Earth in 2010, followed by the four-time Emmy-nominated Any Human Heart. And since then, his career has been a thrill ride of deeply impassioned storytelling. From Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, Snow White and the Huntsman, the Hunger Games films, his powerful performances in the six-time award-winning Me Before You, Adrift, the global phenomenon Peaky Blinders, Jennifer Kent's Unforgettable, The Nightingale, Enola Holmes, and so much more. Our guest brings a potency to his roles that attaches itself to you long after the credits fade. There are not many actors who can at once change the way you think, the way you love, and the way you live. He continues to achieve this through his choices and projects and in the unique choices he brings to them. His latest is an evocative thriller called Every Breath You Take. It's about a psychiatrist who encounters the surviving brother of a former patient who had taken her own life at the same time that the doctor's own life is falling apart at the seams. It's in select theaters and premium VOD April 2nd. We are honored to welcome one of its stars, Sam Claflin. Yeah! Yeah! Wow. I have to say that's one of the nicest introductions I have ever received. Oh my goodness! Wow! <laughs> People that aren't usually that kind. That's uh, that's very, very, very nice. Well, well deserved, my gosh. And yes, congratulations yeah. on this film. So this one was made under, partially under extraordinarily unique circumstances during the pandemic. What impact has making this particular film had on you? Well, actually, we finished filming, I mean, literally just before the pandemic hit. So, I mean, it, it was that thing when no one... Qu- it's, it's, it's strange to think that that would have been the last time I was going to be on set before this life-changing, world-changing pandemic hit, you know. I, I feel like I may have approached the, the whole thing differently, like in a sense, that thinking this is going to be the last time I'm going to be on a film set for it, you know, a year and a half. But yeah, I, I, I had no idea. I had no idea at the time of filming, like what was about to happen. Um, but obviously when we, when we kind of came about to like doing ADR and like, having to get into a studio, that was the first time of any, any sort of 
any rumblings of work was happening during this, 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 this time. So it, 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 it was hugely affected. I can only hope that people find some sort of comfort in, in, in new entertainment in, in this film somehow. But yeah, it's, 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 uh, yeah, it's a strange one. It's a strange one. It's enjoyable. It's a thrill ride, um, you know, and it was one of the reasons I got involved in the project. I think, I think being on the edge of my seat was something I, I enjoy. Um, and it's, it's, it's definitely a script for that. So. Tell us about the locations. They are stunning and add so much to kind of the claustrophobic nature of what's going on. Where was the shot? Well, so we shot just outside Vancouver. Uh, some actually, some some days we shot in Vancouver, but uh, there was a place called Squamish. Yeah, I believe. Yeah, Squamish out in, out in the middle of nowhere. Like, and it felt it felt hugely like so remote and so kind of almost otherworldly. Like I'd never experienced anything like it. I, I realized in being there that I'd never even seen mountains like uh, you know like that. Anyway, with s- snow caps on, because in England we don't we don't have many mountains. Uh, <laughs> so. It was just for me. It was it was it was a mind blowing experience being in a location like that and, and experiencing cold like that and uh, you know kind of live, live the environment and the atmosphere. Always, I feel like it plays a character in any any sort of film that you watch. And it definitely felt very claustrophobic and otherworldly to me, um, and something that I wasn't familiar with. So it was kind of enjoyable forcing myself as that character to kind of get used to that dynamic and get used to that, 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 that kind of environment. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was good fun, man. It was great, great, great opportunity to explore. New- now, director Von Stein, he cites touchstones like Scorsese's Cape Fear and the films of Alfred Hitchcock when it comes to Every Breath You Take. Terrific thrillers and, and fantastic entries into the pantheon of horror. What's your own relationship to horror as a viewer? Do you remember the first time you saw a horror film and how it made you feel? Do you know, I remember watching Scream when I was way too young. And, and I think that was the first time, like, I mean, the first time I, 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 I yeah, I'd ever experienced fear to that extent. Like I genuinely didn't. And, and in fact, you know, I, th- I think the scariest movie I ever watched, and again, something I watched way too young was the Blair Witch Project. And I remember kind of, that was the first time I'd ever seen any sort of form of found footage film. And, and I remember, I remember being in this, uh, music store called HMV in England and seeing a poster that said like missing and it had the pictures of them. And I was like, Oh, oh my God, the, these are really missing people. This is a real missing people case. And I remember seeing that film going, I can't believe this is the only footage of these people that I genuinely believed that that was all real. Like I was so drawn into that world and it stayed with me for years and years and years. Like, I mean, until, until I realized and really understood what horror and what filmmaking was like films that stay with you like that. And I, another one that I watched more, you know, a lot more recently, but um, the, the first paranormal activity in that same vein, like the, a film that really stays with you and really leaves you thinking. I remember laying in bed that night after watching that film and being so aware of every sound in the house, every single time the radiator clicked, every single pipe that made any sort of cackle. Like it, it, it was, it, Films that just stay with you, that, that for me is what horror is about. And that, that, that's, that's the sort of films I, I hope that I can, you know, you know, continue to make those sort of films. Like they're, they're, they're the ones that really, really sing to me. On that note, I mean, as an actor, you've certainly had a taste of the genre and things like this and the quiet ones, which is a, like a hammer horror film. And although not a proper horror film, a drift is terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Your role, yeah. though, as Lieutenant Hawkins in The Nightingale 
is one of the darkest, most horrifying portrayals I think we have ever seen. Yeah. What were the challenges of tapping into that? And how as an actor, do you keep a role like that from becoming a traumatic experience for you? Or is it that trauma that enriches you moving forward as an actor? I think, I think um, if, if I'm completely honest with myself, uh, I, I still look back at that as a traumatic experience. Like I think, I think I'd challenge, it was too big a challenge for me. I think uh, in all honesty, and not that I didn't enjoy or, or get a lot out of that experience, but I think it, it was just, it was heavy, man. It was the first script that I read after my son, my firstborn was born, you know, like it was wow. the first script that came to my, my desk. And I remember getting to like page 20 when you, you know, the, the, you know, not to give away any spoilers, but there's a baby that gets slammed into a wall. And I, I was like, what, you know, by this point, I think there was a second rape and there, there was a baby getting slammed into a wall. I was like, this is just, this is way too much. This is so graphic and so repulsive. But I was still draw. I was still intrigued and curious to sort of like angry, almost sort of reading the rest of it. And so angry that I was like, well, this, this story needs to be told like, because this is, this is how, it was so honest in its depiction, I think, of the time and of the era and of the, the, the culture in that particular area at that time that I, I felt like it, it was almost my duty to, to sort of want to get involved in something like that and to tell a story and to, 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 to depict a, an honest bit of storytelling. So for me, like kind of exploring a character that dark but that realistic was yeah, it's hugely damaging, man. Like psychologically, emotionally, physically, I put on a lot of weight for that film, and and but just just the, the yeah the trauma I think I went through as an actor, kind of just constantly worrying about my my fellow actors almost like because we were pushing each other. Jennifer Kent works in such a wonderfully inclusive and and, and committed way that she really pushes us to our limits, you know. And I, I remember doing the audition for that, that, that role and crying after my audition. And she was the one who kind of came and comforted me. And she was like, the reason you're crying is because it's not you, but you, you aren't this person. Then it, it, it's, it hurts because, you know, it, it's pushing you to your limit. And I think everyone has a breaking point. And I think, I think the Nightingale was my breaking point. And not that I, I, I'd say never, I, I'd never do something like that again, but I think... I definitely needed a break after that. So, so lying on the back of a boat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean doing a drift was definitely the, the departure that I needed after such a gruesome and horrendous, horrendous experience. Wow. But yeah. Just an unforgettable role. And congratulations on that again. It, yeah, you, you scared the shit out of everybody. Yeah, I appreciate <laughs> that. Leo's got a question about uh, bringing James Flagg to life in this movie. Leo, with yours. Yeah, in this movie, you give a fantastic performance. You play both the uh, manipulative and devious side, but also a grief-stricken, vulnerable character. Talk about playing both sides of the character. I think what was sort of enjoyable about exploring this character, you know, the, the, the one thing I kept reminding myself of as, as we were sort of going through the process was that, you know, I, I kept saying to Vaughn, the director, I was like, well, I, you know, how, how believable is it that this person stays in character all the time? Like, I mean... And he's like, well, you're an actor. You do this <laughs> for a job. This is your job. You pretend to be other people for 12 hours a day, every day for weeks, you know, like it's, it's totally believable. I was like, okay, yeah, no, I, I get that. And actually someone who was that obsessed and, and, and driven and, and 
uh, angry and, and damaged, I suppose, and, and meticulous, it's absolutely believable. And I, I, think, I think having the opportunity to explore those different sides to, to, to someone's personality, like almost, almost sort of multi-personality disorder, you know, that, that kind of schizophrenic, it, it, yeah, it, it was just enjoyable. I, I felt like I was making three films at, at once. Like I, I was like a romantic comedy with the daughter, like a romantic drama with the mother and, and like a, a thriller horror with the dad. Like it, it, it was for me, I mean, as an actor, it's a dream come true. I felt like I was playing three different roles at once. So it was, yeah, it's, it's a joy. It was a joy, really. Yeah, working with Michelle, uh, Casey and India, what was your favorite scene or sequence to shoot? I mean, you know, some of the best actors out there. I mean, like Casey's a Oscar winning Michelle nominated for God knows how many awards. I mean, it, 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 I felt so incredibly fortunate to be in that position and, and to be kind of rubbing shoulders with, with some of the best. I, I, it's, it's hard to pinpoint what my favorite thing was to shoot. I, th- I think every scene felt so different and every, every opportunity that we kind of got together and that, that I was, exploring kind of a different side to not only the character, but also to myself. Like, I think, I think I enjoyed every scene for different reasons. I, th- I think being in the mental institution and kind of working with Casey and playing, playing kind of playing psychotic, uh, playing someone playing psychotic was, was, um, yeah, quite, quite fun. And we, we kind of played with how far he went and how, re- how damaged and how planned and how prepared and, just how how psychotic it was so it, it was it was really fun playing i think through those scenes but uh yeah anyone who follows you on social media will note that an acoustic guitar isn't very far behind when it comes to sam claflin in what ways does music play a part in offering a gateway to different roles that you play i i have to say music's always been my inspiration like i think i think as much as you know so the guitar thing is something that's only happened over the last year. I was in the process of starting a new project and relocating to Los Angeles just as the pandemic hit uh, to, to sort of take on this new role of Billy Dunn in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a series based on a book called Daisy Jones and the Six. And that's to play like a front man of a band. And it's something I've never played guitar before. So I, originally I only had like six weeks of preparation time. Uh, and thankfully somehow I say thankfully for the pandemic, but no, I mean, Thankfully, I've been gifted a bit more time because of the, the delay in, you know, production because of the pandemic. So it's uh, the acoustic guitar is a new, a new, a new tool personally, but I, I definitely find a lot of, I find it's a meditative and therapeutic kind of strumming away at a guitar and making no sense. You know, I'm not very good still, so it's still, still work to be done. But for me, listening to music definitely helps me get into a role, definitely motivates me and gets me into a mood, gets the energy going in whatever capacity you need it to. So that there's always sort of a musical influence, I'd say, in my approach to, to a character or to a, to a role or to a film or to a story or to a mood. It's, it definitely informs me personally. I, th- I, think, I think everyone in some way, shape or form is sort of influenced by music more than they know it sometimes. Is there a James Flagg playlist for uh, Every Breath You Take? Are there songs that, that he gravitated towards? I think the police, uh, every breath you take was definitely a song that I sang to myself. <laughs> I feel it in my fingers. I feel it in my toes. Yeah. No, um, it's, <laughs> no, I, I, I don't, I don't know that it was a specific playlist, but I think it was just more a mood. And I think that depended on which scene I was, I was sort of doing of the day. 
but uh, yeah, uh, no, there, there was no, no sort of set playlist, unfortunately. Sorry, I should, I'll, I'll be more prepared next time. No, hey, <laughs> it's all good, man. Well, we're getting the wrap up time. Our time is up with you. And uh, again, congrats on the film. We appreciate so much this yes. opportunity to speak with you. We've wanted to for a long time. Yes. So this is a dream come true for us. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much, Sam. Awesome, guys. Thank you. Bless you. All right. Take it easy. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Are there still demons today? If demons are real, then where do they stay? The Boo Crew Podcast. You need to take a moment to deal with what's happened. Please don't rush yourself. Losing a patient is tough. It's a bereavement, Philip. This is Dr. Clark. Her? I'm James. We were just getting ready to sit down and eat. Would I, you like to join us? I know what you must be going through, and I'm very sorry. Family's all there is. And you have a great one. What if we were friends? Friends. I'm gonna watch you. Trouble? I can take a look. I don't bite. I'm gonna watch you. James is gonna list his sister's house with us. Really? I'm gonna haunt you. I'd like you to find a new real estate agent. I'm not your enemy, Dr. Clark. I never said you were. Where is it with you and that man? I'm gonna watch you. I'd like to make a formal complaint against one of your psychiatrists. The administration board wants you to step aside. Do you think James is behind this? Yes. Joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio is an incredibly captivating actor who got her start in the 2015 horror film Headspace, followed by an unforgettable role in Underworld Awakening as the powerful vampire lichen hybrid Eve. Her next home was on the multi-award-winning ABC family show The Secret Life of the American Teenager, playing Ashley Jurgens. The lead in the action thriller Kite, Nanny Cam, the award-winning V.C. Andrews adaption My Sweet Audrina, the visually stunning and Curse of Sleeping Beauty, Netflix's Clinical, TNT's critically acclaimed mystery series I Am the Night that earned her a satellite nomination for her portrayal of Fauna Hodel. Simply put, her projects are breathtaking to immerse yourself in. She has a whimsical knack of injecting subtlety and power into her performances and always just enough of a secret and mystery behind the eyes and in her delivery to leave you yearning, questioning, caring, and sometimes fearing the characters she continues to boldly craft. Her latest project is an emotionally devastating thriller called Every Breath You Take about a psychiatrist who encounters the brother of a former patient who had taken her own life at the same time that the doctor's own life is falling apart. It's in select theaters and premium VOD April 2nd. We are honored to welcome one of its stars, the amazing India Isley. Yeah! Yeah! Hello. My goodness. Thank you. Well, India, congratulations on yet another amazing film and character. Now, I would assume every role and experience changes an actor in some way or gives you a seed to take with you into your repertoire. Now, Lucy is very damaged, but so full of that yearning we mentioned. The physicality of the scene with Sam at the pier in the cafe even. There's so much hope in her. What drew you to Lucy and what did you learn about yourself in, in playing her? I think just that, honestly. I love I loved characters that I love playing against something internally. And I loved that she, you know, on the surface level, she is just kind of, you know, the angsty teen, which at first, you know, you go like, oh, here we go. But I, I love that there was something, you know, th- there was something tangible that really did 
it was a fork in the road for her with her brother. Like it really did traumatize her. And, um, and it was, a, it was the kind of character that I've just really never played before. Like I, I've, I mean, you know, I, I've really never, yeah, I, I hadn't, hadn't really done that before. And, um, yeah, I like, I like that, you know, playing against that contrast of uh, she still is only 16, 17 years old. And I liked having to emotionally remember, you know, where I was at at that point hormonally. And, you know, because there's so much happening at that age. I, th- I thought that it was very interesting. Lucy is the daughter of Grace and Philip, played by Casey Affleck and Michelle Monaghan. And then a catalyst enters the home. The mysterious Sam Claflin is James Flagg, the grief-stricken brother of a lost soul that Philip has saved through his psychiatry work. Now, having all of these extraordinarily competent actors like yourself in a claustrophobic world is an absolute delight as an audience member. Can you put into words what it feels like to lose yourself and find your character even more so through their performances? And does that make it any harder to shake afterwards? Not in this case, uh, because, you know, it, it honestly, it, it's just such a joy working with people who are professional and, you know, and just really just, you know, they just know what they're doing. Like it's, it, it makes your job just infinitely easier. And, you know, just, it, it's really just reacting off of them. And the chemistry just kind of ends up being built in when, when people are good. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and it, it becomes less of like, I'm acting right now, which is an awful, awful feeling to have. And, and it becomes more just in the moment, which is, you know, what everyone wants <laughs> and everyone strives for. What did the gorgeous and isolated setting and location do to elevate what you brought to Lucy? Yeah, it was. And I think it honestly, because it was so isolated and very, very cold, I think it kind of just amplified the detachment that this family is feeling, especially in the beginning. Any kind of extreme weather conditions kind of bring out, you know, different performances. It just made it basically, it just amplified the, the misery of, the, of, of everyone involved. Von Stein, the director, admires some of the greatest thrillers and thriller filmmakers ever in the genre. Mm-hmm. What were the unique benchmarks of his directing style that you enjoyed? Uh, Von was a, it was a joy to work with. He's just, he's very relaxed and just, he's, he's not like overbearing in any way. And yeah, I mean, those are the main things that I took from, from him is that he's, he's very, you know, he's just very relaxed and very chill on set. And it's always nice working with that because it sets a precedence for everything else. Yeah. Your character Lucy has to walk this fine line of being rebellious, uh, teenager to your parents played by Michelle and Casey and a bit vulnerable and trusting to Sam's character, James, what films or characters did you yeah. study for your role as Lucy? I didn't really study any other any other roles. I really just, you know, this, the script was pretty self-explanatory with her relationship with because Grace is her stepmother, so she 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 has you know some level of trust with her, and so you know that's very easy with Michelle because she's just such a dream to work with. I didn't really study any other roles. I really just kind of went with the feeling and just played off of everyone around me. Speaking of other films, uh, we want to get into your horror history as you've been in some of the most interesting genre films. How far back does your experience as a connoisseur of horror and thrillers go as a viewer? Do you have any early memories of seeing a horror film and how it made you feel? Well, I mean, I don't know if this qualifies as a horror film, but, uh, you know, it's the truth. Uh, The first film I ever saw 
was um, Beetlejuice. Yeah. <laughs> and I was two. I was, yeah, I was about two, and it was the only, I think I've permanently ruined Beetlejuice for my entire family, because I, they, like, I had to watch it on a loop every day for years, from when I was, like, two to, I don't know, like, five or something. It was, like, it was just my favorite film. So, uh, <laughs> so quite, quite early on, I think I've always been attracted to kind of darker subject matters, and and then, you know, obviously, I kind of progressed and watch <laughs> obviously I didn't only watch Beetlejuice for the rest of my life <laughs> as brilliant as it is but then I you know moved on to like Rosemary's Baby and The Omen and obviously like The Exorcist and Sounds of the Lambs like the list goes on I, I love any of the any thrillers and any horror films really what is it about them is there a, a reoccurring factor in all those kind of movies that you love they're just, I mean, uh, the dumb answer for me is they're just fun. <laughs> I just, I just really love them. You know, I, I, I think also to, they're really fun to make. It's, it's really fun to, to be scared shitless <laughs> in a scene. And um, it's any kind of extreme emotions really is, is, I think a lot of actors feel that way. It's, it's fun. It's plain and simple. It's just fun. They're fun to watch. They're fun to be in. Underworld Awakening was extraordinarily fun to watch, and you were such a blast to watch, and, and easily the most talked about character in the <laughs> franchise. And it's such a terrific showpiece to your skills as an action star, which is later echoed in Kite. Talk about the deliciousness of playing Eve a little bit and taking yourself to that level of physical performance. Oh, Eve was a blast. I really loved playing her. You know, because like the audition, I I was very excited for because it was so much. It was it was just physical. Like it was. To, to have in the script in the breakdown for the audition to have at 15 16 years old to have it say like you're a half werewolf and half vampire <laughs> show us what you show us what you were thinking it's like yes like it's limitless i can just go in and act like a feral animal and um yeah so that that was just a, a blast and it was funny because one of the stunt coordinators from underworld was also on audrina and he was also on this film oh great so, so yeah, so he was like a little comfort named Hugo. <laughs> um, I digress. But Eve was really, really a blast to play, especially at that young age. So Eve's storyline is far from finished after Blood Wars. Will we see her return in a new film? And, and where do you think a new film could expand upon and offer the franchise? Oh, I mean, that would be a question for Len Weissman and, you know, and Gary Lucchese and all of them. But I mean, I would be I would love to play her again. Who knows where the storyline could go, but that would be fun to revisit her. It'd be fun to see, I'll tell you that. Now, one of the coolest and creative horror films that we've ever seen is 2018's Look Away. Wow, that one was magical. And it highlights exquisite oh, emotional extremes on your part in crafting not one, but two sides of a character, playing off each other and in unison. What mark did that journey mm -hmm. leave on you? Uh, that was probably one of the most fun jobs I've ever done. Uh, I really, really, I mean, it was, it, I just g genuinely just really had such an incredible time playing those two characters. And also working with Jason Isaacs and Mira Silvina was, was lovely. But yeah, it, it, that was a very special job to me as far as, you know, performing and learning, myself, learning about myself as an actress. That was as pretentious as that sounds. <laughs> the best way I can describe it. 
Yeah, I absolutely adored playing those roles. What were the mechanics of pulling that duality off where you're playing up against yourself? It was pretty tricky at first because all of the bathroom scenes, obviously it was, it was very insulated and we want, obviously like none of the other actors were really aware of what was going on in those scenes. But uh, we, we didn't have a split screen. So uh, what they had was, uh, was two sets, uh, like two mirror image sets for the bathroom. And so I would film one side of the character and then, you know, we'd get that side and then I would go, I, I would basically just walk around the wall and go into the mirror image set and do it, you know, and do the other character. Wow. But yeah, it was, it was pretty trippy, especially because there was one shot that was like a revolving shot that where the camera came around me. And I had to kind of switch characters while the camera wasn't on me. I can answer myself in one take. Oh my like, God. That makes, it was a continuous thing. So that was really, really, that, <laughs> I remember being a little bit, because that one I did, it was kind of sprung on me on the day where they're like, hey, can you run actually like all of the, can you just like do all of the dialogue this time without a stand in? And we're just going to film like you answering yourself like in full schizo fashion. And you, you have like half an hour to prepare. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> like, yeah, of course I can do it. And then I promptly went to the bathroom and had a panic attack. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then emerged and was like, okay, I'm ready. <laughs> um, but it was exhilarating doing that kind of stuff. I love, I love that kind of work where it's, you know, I don't have time to overthink things. Yeah. Wow, that's so funny that you mentioned it because some of those scenes play off like a dance, like a choreographed ballet, even in the sense of the way you're touching the mirror or, uh, you know, your movements. And especially when Aram takes over and the physicality of that takes place. Was any of that, was any of your love of dance instilled into that character and help you develop that physical? Yeah, I think so. Because like, uh, maybe it was subconscious or something because like Aram was very feline. Like that's what I got from her with the way she was written. You know, so the movements were very kind of completely opposite of Maria, which who is just kind of clunky and self-conscious and meek and stuff. So Aram really, it's, you know, the shoulders back and just being very like she owns the room, basically. One more scene, you know, we could talk about that movie forever as well. Uh, there's one more scene I wanted to mention that that exchange with you and Mira Sorvino at the dining room table with the, uh, I call it the, is, oh, the is, yeah, is he working late exchange and the slap. Take us to that moment in filming that scene because it, it is just a tremendous example of two masters squaring off. Oh, thank you for saying that. I mean, Mira is just uh, like amazing. So, you know, that's, that's, thank you for the compliment. <laughs> um, very kind of you. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, I, I think, honestly, when we shot that, it went by very fast. Like it was, it, it was at the end of one of the work days. Like, because that whole shoot kind of went by quite, quite quickly. Yeah, I remember it just being very quick, and it was it was really fun to do that because I, I it's always fun playing playing bitchy, <laughs> playing bitchy with no no worry of any kind of repercussions. That kind of character. I am the night was phenomenal. You were amazing in it, and if you haven't seen it, you definitely need to see it. I'm telling our listeners, like, it is amazing. And you play Fauna Hodel, who grew up believing she was mixed race, only to find out she wasn't. How did you get into that space to play that character? That was a very, very bizarre job. I mean, I loved doing I'm the Night. And it was like a five and a half month shoot. So it was very, 
Like it, it became kind of my my existence for five months. But yeah, I mean, you know, when I got the, it was very funny because when the breakdown came in, there was a typo and it said mixed race, but it didn't give any any context of of her story. And so, like, I, I found up my agents and I was like, listen, I haven't really been in the office lately, but you do remember what I look like, right? <laughs> and, and, they, and I don't know if I can pull this one off, guys. And they were like, no, 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 don't pay attention to that. And so then I looked her up and, um, and it was because I, I watch a lot of, like, crime shows and documentaries and stuff on, on crime and, like, true crime stuff. And so I was very familiar with the name George Hodel, but I hadn't put together Fauna Hodel. I hadn't put two and two together yet. So when I started, you know, looking it up before the audition, I, I, I was like, oh my God, I know, I wait, I, I, I know about this, you know, the whole Black Dahlia tie-in. Yeah. I mean, is she, it was very interesting because I filmed Look Away and then for a year I didn't work. And so my next job after that was I'm the Night. And so it was very bizarre going from playing, you know, mentally playing like the absolute psycho that was look away and then going straight into playing someone who is so nuanced and beautifully written and observant. Like she's, she's so, she's, she is like the sane one amongst all of these crazies. So at first, you know, when I first started filming, I remember I kept asking Patty and I was like, I feel like I'm not doing anything. <laughs> and, she, and she was like, no, 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 you're doing so much. And I was like, but I feel like, because I was so used to being crazy at that point. <laughs> so I was, I was like, I was like, am I, am I just like sitting here and giving the dullest performance of all time? <laughs> um, and, she, and it was, it, so I, I kind of had to just get used to, you know, just the observant, quiet stillness that that Fauna had and the resilience that she had that was, very silent but very strong that was a very long one no that was was fantastic (laughs) yeah that was fantastic yeah yeah. Yeah, all your choices are so inspired and carefully pointed as far as the different roles you choose and the projects you choose they're always extraordinarily interesting and entirely different from each other is there something that draws you in particular just to, to choosing roles and deciding to go for it yeah, I mean, obviously, obviously, I have to make a living, <laughs> but um, but as far as creatively, I do get bored very easily, mm. and so when I'm reading something, I have to gauge whether or not, like, I'm very, I'm actually invested in the character. You know, I, I can tell pretty quickly if there's something that I I don't feel I can bring something to, and it's unless it's it's oh, I'd love to work with this director and these actors and. Stuff. And even though, like, I'll find something to bring to the character, but you know, it's it's very specific. It's a feeling. I, I it's I, I'm trying to explain it. It's hard to articulate because it's all emotional. But um, yeah, I, I just try my best to to only pick roles that one I feel I can bring something to, and two, I know that I'm not that I'm not going to get bored within a week. And, um, and then, you know, cause I, nothing, no good performance comes from that. And I don't, you know, it's, it's hard to maintain a decent performance when you've basically just clocked out and you're thinking of what cross service has, you know, <laughs> that's just like my worst nightmare. I get very intense about it. And so it's kind of like, okay, well, I have to actually have emotional investment in this character. Do you keep any 
props or costumes from any of the productions that you've been in? We love collecting props. So I was just, I'm always curious. (laughs) I don't think I ever have, actually. I know a lot of actors just nick things, but <laughs> but um, but no, I think because uh, I'm pretty and I'm also the worst at like taking pictures with actors while I'm working and then I'll get to the end of the job and have like nothing, to, like no memories from it. But, you know, it, it's it's actually I don't know if this counts because it's not really a prop from prop department, but I have a pair of boots that I've had since I was 12 and I've worn them in at least like eight of my jobs. Oh, interesting. <laughs> That's awesome. A little Easter egg. <laughs> yeah. I've worn them so many times and, and wear them almost every day. And so it's kind of my extension <laughs> to like every, every project I've been in. Now I'm going to look at your feet. Anytime <laughs> I see you in a film, I'm going to go straight for the feet. You're going to watch that I've secret life it. of American the teenage. Rogue, yeah. The rogue boots. Yeah. They've ruined it. <laughs> I briefly wanted to mention your mom, uh, Livia Hussey, who we all love. Uh, she starred in one of the most Aww. iconic genre defining horror films of all time, Black Christmas from 1974. And uh, seeing yes. as we're going through a massive horror renaissance right now, would you like to act in more horror movies? And is there a franchise you'd like to be a part of? I would. As far as a horror franchise, I'm not really aware of one. I mean, I'm I'm open. Black Christmas actually was one of my favorite. It's my favorite of my mother's films. So <laughs> everyone's like, Romeo and Juliet? And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, because, you know, that, that kind of horror, I think Bob Clark really made such a unique, uh, such a unique mark on, in that genre. So I would love to do more horror. I mean, if it, if it's done well, you know, because there are so many horror films that just aren't. <laughs> and also I'm a terrible giggler, so I think I'd, I'd very soon realize, oh, I'm a part of something really bad, and I wouldn't be able to stop laughing. <laughs> so that wouldn't be good either. <laughs> so I would love to be a part of, be a part of horror films, if they're good. <laughs> How's that for a douchey answer? No, that was awesome. Oh, that was great. great. That was Perfect. honest and awesome. Yeah. I'm curious, what yes. was the first time that you were allowed to watch Black Christmas. I, th- I saw it really young. I think I saw it around when I was around seven. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was, I was with the aforementioned Beetlejuice obsession. I think my parents knew that I could like take it yeah. and I wouldn't be scared. Yeah. <laughs> Certain kids can handle horror early. You know, the demented ones, we turn out well. <laughs> I'm surprised you saw it that early with uh, Margot Kidder's uh, dialogue on the phone most of the time. <laughs> Oh yeah, I, I mean, I was I was pretty I was a I was a party mouth as a child, but I knew when to crack it up and when to reel it in. Um, but uh, but yeah, I was, that was never an issue. And because my father, like, he's a musician, and so he, there were always like bikers and rockers around growing up. So I heard my fair share of off-color language when I was a baby, and it never it wasn't wasn't an issue ever. Before we let you go, what are people uh, able to see you in next? Is there anything coming down the pike that you've worked on that's uh, coming out soon? I haven't filmed in COVID era yet, so that's going to be interesting. I have a couple of projects in the offing that I'm uh, that I'm waiting to hear on because of COVID. You know, because so many projects are falling apart. Um, so you know, until then, I'm just plugging away and waiting for my next my next job. Very exciting. Well, India, thank you so much for your time and your talent and this extraordinary film and the continued adventures and success to come. Thank you so much and thank all of you for your kind words and this has been a blast. The Boo Crew will be right back. This is Alfred Hitchcock. 
I would like you to play a little game with me, a sort of guessing game. Please listen. What would you say made that sound? It might be as literal as a knife tearing through, let us say, a curtain, or as fanciful as suspense tearing through the edge of your nerves, or it might be both. Would you like to hear it again? I can't give you the answer. It would spoil the game and your enjoyment of my latest motion picture, Torn Curtain, which stars Paul Newman and Julie Andrews and... That sound you just heard, knife or nerves? Torn Curtain will tear you apart with suspense. Alfred Hitchcock's Torn Curtain in Technicolor. It will tear you apart with suspense. Joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio is a fascinating storyteller who cut his teeth and developed a love for the craft in the theater. After attending the University of Bristol, adding to that study with drama and film, he started a career in cinema as the assistant director of some of the biggest and most culturally impactful films ever made. The Harry Potter movies, Pirates of the Caribbean, the Oscar-winning Dark Knight, Golden Globe-winning and Oscar-nominated Sherlock Holmes, the BAFTA-winning Quantum of Solace, Oscar-nominated Beauty and the Beast, and many many more. Armed with a wealth of experience and magic, he began to chase his passion of writing and directing his own films, starting with the award-winning short Youssef is Complicated in 2015 and his first feature, the neon-soaked fantasy crime noir starring Margot Robbie, Mike Myers, and Simon Pegg, 2018's Terminal. In 2020, he returned with Inheritance, a nail-biting mystery with Lily Collins and the return of Simon Pegg in one of his most fun roles yet. We, the audience, are in for such an incredible journey. When you see our guest's name attached to a film, in just a handful of unique projects, he has built a brand for himself as a master manipulator of tension and intimacy that will always leave you guessing and always leave you wanting more. His latest is just that, a claustrophobic thriller about a psychiatrist who, after a client commits suicide, invites her brother into his own family's home and the turn their lives begin to take. It's called Every Breath You Take. It stars Casey Affleck, Michelle Monaghan, India Isley, and Sam Claflin. In select theaters and premium VOD April 2nd, we are honored to welcome its director, Vaughn Stein. Yeah! Yeah! Could I ask a favour? Would you just phone my mum and repeat that all to her? That's that the be, best. That would be superb. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the man. best introduction I've ever had. Dude, Thanks wow. So Well-deserved. It's all, it's all true. It's all the facts. So, yeah. dude, congratulations yeah. on another spectacular adventure. We just wanted to kick it off diving into the darker side of your palette in terms of the horror genre. What is your earliest memory of being affected by a horror movie or a thriller as a viewer? Ooh, that's a great question. I know my earliest like visceral reaction was Watership Down. You know, the, uh, the rabbit cartoon based on Richard Adams' book. Did you ever see that? I didn't that see it, no. It, it is, it is, it's a dark book and they made a... Um, how they ever made it as a children's movie, I will never understand. It's about mixomatosis in rabbit communities and it's it's terrifying and i remember being i remember sleeping with the lights on for like 
about three years moment, really, a, couple, a good few weeks after that. I think the, the one I really remember having the most profound effects on me, they re-released The Exorcist when I was far too young to see it in the cinemas. And I saw that with my cousin when I was 12, I think. And that, I mean, that destroyed me. That, that was, uh, I, I vividly remember like feeling my, my fingers like pushing into the rubber on the chair. Like I, I really, that terrified me. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably my earliest too, I'd say. What are the tentpoles of the genre for you? Oh, wow. I mean, The Exorcist is definitely one. I mean, that is, I mean, that's a spectacular film in, in, in every way. I mean, you know, one of the things that I really, I really enjoy about horror is the technical precision that goes into it just through everything, you know, is, is amazing. And yeah, I would say the exorcist is definitely one. I, I, I have a, a real soft spot is the wrong word for the omen. I mean, that really still gets under my skin. I, I think those, those really stand up. You know, well, stand up is the wrong word. They're iconic movies. And I think more recently, I do you know, I I remember I remember the first time I saw The Ring, the remake of The Ring, the Vinsky Ring. And yeah. I thought that was an astonishing movie. I mean, that that absolutely terrified me. And uh, and I think the attention to detail in like the tone and the sort of sense of creeping dread in that, and then the sort of explosion of horror that comes towards the end. I just I thought it was astonishing. And I never, ever want to see Hereditary ever again. Honestly, there are parts of that movie that I have definitely like stricken from my mind. I just never want to think about it. I mean, that was, that, was in, that was a brilliant movie. Yeah, I would say that's, I, for me, there's some of the tempos, yeah. I, I'm, 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 oh, yeah. I, I mean, for me, I, I think I, I'm very, very interested in, um, it, like the sense of creeping dread. I really enjoy psychological horror. And I think that that fine line between the thriller chiller and horror, when, when filmmakers play with that, like Scorsese with Shutter Island, for example, I find that really exciting. Speaking of that, is there a particular moment in cinema or a, a collection of particular moments that have moved you so much that you carry them with you and it remains a feeling that you chase in your own work? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I mean, sort of tangentially from horror, I think that feeling of cool in that's in in it well not early Tarantino in all Tarantino, but the the uh, the films I first saw when I remember first seeing Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction and just thinking this guy is a genius. This is special. I want to like. You know, every, you know the the use of ensemble, the use of music, like the brilliance of the actors, like sort of you know countercasting people the way he did, like and just that that suffusion of cool that ran through it that really impacted on me, and I, I kind of fell in love with those films at uh, that right sort of teenage age, if you know what I mean. When I was like, this this is incredible. This is this is what I want to do, and I I, rem- I, I, I think about. I think about Fight Club as well. I think that had a really profound effect on me. I, I, I've always been interested in satire. And I think to be able to do something like Fight Club, that is such an amazing exploration of like, well, everything like counterculture in the 20th century, like toxic masculinity, like where we're going as, as people. And to be able to do that in such an insanely entertaining way, that's really uh, well, like it's it, you know it's brilliant satire, but it's so intelligible, it's so understandable to the audience. Like yeah, I, that really, 
yeah, that was a real moment. I, I, I think I'm very interested in, in that and, and trying to find a way of like sort of fusing satire and art. I find that really interesting. All those films that you mentioned and the films of Tarantino and Fight Club and all that stuff. And even, you know, you, you, you do that and you continuously do that with the three films that you've released so far as your own is there's a feeling of euphoria, isn't it? At some point in these films where, you know, the realization of everything going on and the way it's articulated so well, there's a real magic and euphoric feeling to it. I remember sitting in the theater at the end of Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, and just losing my mind Mm -hmm. with that feeling that it leaves you with. Is that something you strive for in your own work as well? Definitely. And I love, you know, like I love, books that are page turners. I love films that keep you guessing that, that feeling of subverting expectation, that feeling of like having a rug pulled out as a, as a viewer or a reader and having something surprise you to that extent that it punches you in the gut is some, and, and also as a filmmaker, that's something I look for. I love those labyrinthine sort of twists and turns and that sense of story always propped up by you know great character and great dialogue like it can't just be driven by narrative it's got to be it's got to be a combination of everything but to be able to do that to, to grab an audience and take them on a roller coaster ride like so they buy a ticket early on and they're just on for the ride i i love that feeling and i do you know i i think about like edgar wright who i'm a, a massive massive fanboy of and you just there is they are at heart, you know, look, they're beautifully made films and he's an incredibly precise filmmaker, but they're great stories from like frame one. You buy a ticket, man, whatever it is, you're like, you're on the right. And I think that's that's something that inspires me. That's something I strive for and fail miserably, but it's worth a try. Oh, come on, man. You do not fail miserably at all. I know. I'm fishing for compliments. Thanks so much. Just for another sign. (laughs) I love Edgar Wright. Like, Shaun of the Dead is, like, my most favorite movie ever. And when I saw Simon Pegg in both those movies, I was so excited. How was it working with Simon? I mean, he's a a dream. Like, he's a, you know, it's like a privilege to like we're really good buds and like you know i had his i had Shaun of the dead on my wall at uni that was like up there amongst all the other like pretentious goddard posters and whatever i had on those god i'm embarrassed to think what i had on those walls but i mean Shaun of the i i literally wore out my copy of Shaun of the dead in my first year at uni i scratched the dvd like it was on every night and he's he's a dream I, he is I mean, he's an insanely talented character actor, as well as being like a world-class comic actor and a brilliant—you know—just a, a brilliant action action character as yeah, well. Yeah, right. Mission. I mean, he's 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 brilliant, and yeah, like I really enjoyed playing him against type, and I think he he revels in that. Like, I think he really enjoys subverting an audience's expectation and having the chance to. Uh, you know, to do things that an audience uh, would not expect. You know, they have preconceived notions of what what Simon does, and to be able to subvert that and do it as brilliant as he does, because he's such a great actor. It's it's the dream as a, as a director. You know, what you pulled out of him in Inheritance was unbelievable. He vanished into that character, and again, it's one of those moments where it took us a while to go. Holy shit, that's Simon Pegg. Oh my God. Like the, the change in the voice and the development of that character. What was that experience like as far as your involvement in the collaboration with him on bringing Morgan to life? I mean, it started months before we started shooting. We sort of, when we built the, I, I write these character portraits for, for 
for my actors, I, I find it quite a useful exercise, even just as a starting point. Like this is the backstory of the character as as it appears to me. You know, let's completely ignore it or take bits from it or see what we like. And we sort of talked about this idea of him, this sort of Tom Ripley esque figure, this kind of chameleonic confidence trickster who was able to who was able to, you know, to be all things to all men, whatever he needed to be in the moment, if he needed to be vulnerable, if he needed to be insidious, he could do it. He had this kind of, this trick bag of emotions. And one of the things we really wanted to do was a physical thing. Like we, this was a, this was a guy incarcerated for, for 30 years. Like what would he look like? Like, and the lengths that Simon went to, I mean, he, he's a, you know, he's a really fit guy anyway, but he like stripped off, I think 15 kilos. And he, we talked about like the prison bod, you know, like the idea of someone incessantly working out to sort of pass the time. And it was, sort of, you know, as part of his, his character makeup. So like he, that sort of gaunt, emaciated skeletal silhouette that he created, he worked so hard to do. And then, you know, to be able to sort of augment it with great uh, makeup and hair, like we were very blessed in the, in the teams that we had to really sort of, you know, to validate it, to kind of, you know, to nail that look. I think, um, I think, yeah, it was, it was an amazing, amazing experience to do it with him. And he went deep. He took a really deep and dark dive as did, as did Lily. Like, you know, there was a lot of, you know, we talked about Silence of the Lambs, which is obviously a film I should have mentioned as a temple of horror. And I'm sorry I didn't, but yeah, that's, you know, one of my favorite films. And, and I think the scariest bits of Silence of the Lambs are watching, you know, Anthony Hopkins take Jodie Foster apart, watching watching Hannibal Lecter take, you know, piece by piece deconstruct Clarice Starling is, is something that we wanted to carry into Inheritance. You know, that was something that sort of featured in our minds in the, those sort of two-handers in the basement. Now, when you surround the story with these amazing performers, what becomes the creative dynamic with you and them in those scenes in the scenes where especially where they go off the rails too, like Casey Affleck does in the car for instance outside where James is staying or Lily Collins inheritance in the scene with her mom in her father's office near the end which is just devastating and what we talked about you pulling out of Simon Pegg what is the feeling like of being there in those cinematic moments right in the thick of it and what does it do to you it would be really pretentious to say it's transcendent, but it is. You forget you're watching a monitor. Like it's, you know, I was, I was very lucky to come from theatre where there is a sort of very immediate and, and visceral feeling created in the room when, when there's a great play on. And I, I think I always strive for that. And, you know, t- taking Casey, for example, who is just the most astonishing actor and just has these unbelievable instincts and is able to create this this slow burn within himself, like that, that builds and builds as it does in every breath, which is a huge part of the story. And then to be able to, to be able to sort of, to perform, to execute, to sort of have no sense of vanity, to commit to those moments. It's, it's amazing. I think a lot of that has to, like, it's got to be earned. I think for me, that's like, that's vital. Like those moments have to be, the crescendo of a journey of an emotional journey and a narrative journey that takes you from in, in, in Casey's case, you know, Philip Clark was this bereaved psychiatrist who's subsumed himself in work, like trying to escape from this sort of unspeakable tragedy in his, in his family, you know, who's very ordered and who, who sort of is, has, has, his life is, is very compartmentalized to be able to, 
bit by bit pull that apart as the emotions and the story both do to bring you to that point of intensity, that that maniacal breakdown. I mean, it's testament to Casey, like, you know, it's testament to Lily and Simon, all these incredible actors I've worked with. And like I said, it's got to be, it's got to be earned. It's got to be a natural build up to that point because I think otherwise audiences are really smart. They see through it. If it's superficial, they see through it. If it's a conceit, like they've got to be connected to it, like in terms of story and emotion, when you reach that point, it's got to have come from a genesis of it's got to be evolved and developed till you get to that. In this particular case with this particular story, what shades of your own creative voice did you see in David Murray's script and the story that made you excited to want to explore it? Honestly, I mean, it's such a wonderful script. I, I think, I think it was, it's very, for me, I think it's very rare and it's something I look for when you have a script that is a great twisting, turning psychological thriller, but it sort of almost juxtapositionally to that. It's an amazing and very haunting sort of meditation on grief. It's, it's, it's full of characters who you really deeply care about and empathize with. I mean, the, the Clark family who've experienced this awful tragedy, like we've all experienced tragedy. We all understand grief. It's a human condition. And to be able to sort of capture that and to explore that in the script with these incredible actors as well, but then to also be able to sort of layer that into a really, a really kind of labyrinthine kind of twisting and turning yeah, cerebral psychological thriller. I just, I, it, to me, it was, it was such a, an interesting combination of things. It really, it really, it made it, I remember reading it and, you know, we talked earlier about that page turn of feel. I was, I was reading it like, oh, this is like, I have no idea where this is going, you know? Yeah, that, that's, that really jumped out for me. Talking about the roller coaster ride aspect of a film, the opening scene of Every Breath kicks the ride off like clicking up the track on a roller coaster and drops us right in. What's important to you to achieve in the opening moments of a film? It's that opportunity to like ground the audience's bum into the seat, isn't it? It's that you think about like some of the great cold openings you think about, I mean, this is completely different genre wise, but you think about the beginning of the dark night or the opening of Pulp Fiction and you're those, those cold openings that, that immerse you in that world. And it, and it can be any genre, it can be anything that it just pulls you in. And I love a cold opening. I, I enjoy it as a viewer and I love to try and work them in as a filmmaker. And I think, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to give too much away, but in terms of like, we, we really, we wanted to show uh, Michelle Monaghan's character, Grace, in a different light to at any other point in the film. And we wanted to show this sense of, of love and gentleness and, and this world that was sort of ripped in two at, you know, at, the, end of the, at the end of the beginning, as it were. And I think that, that, that roller coaster ratcheting up the, the track up the incline, I think is a really, it's a really fitting metaphor for me personally about how I look at how I want to open my films. It's something I'm really drawn towards and, and grabbing the audience, like kind of, you know, you know, pulling them in quickly and making them feel part of the story immediately. I think that's really important. Talk about 
casting. Everybody that's in this film was amazing. India Isley was just I mean, she was just yeah, she's great. brilliant. Also, like yeah. uh, we consider her yeah. a very underused actor. So whenever we see her yeah. in things, it's it's always a special moment. So kudos to you for not only having her in it, but pairing her up with Sam, who, oh, gosh. oh my God, The Nightingale yes. yeah. is just one of the greatest movies ever made as far as we're concerned. What was behind the idea in, in the casting choices that you made? Do you know, I, I had seen Sam recently in Peaky Blinders playing an incredibly difficult part to play. He was playing Oswald Mosley, who was this extremely charismatic fascist leader in Britain in the 1930s, who at one point was, you know, on the way to becoming, you know, our Hitler. Like, you know, as fascism was rising up all through Europe, Mosley was, was, was riding the coattails of Mussolini and Hitler. And he was so brilliant in that. It was, it is a seminal performance. And he is so intense and terrifying, but at the same time, very charismatic and handsome and charming. And, and I just, yeah, there, there was something. So, the, so James, who, who is the antagonist of, of every breath is a very complicated character who is wounded and vulnerable and full of this rage. And he, he has this sort of mercurial quality, this both Sam, well, well Sam, because he's brilliant. Well, he brought to the role that he was able to, to you know, to use his wiles and his charm, and it, all of it, you know, to to manipulate all the characters as he needed to. And I mean, I'd, Sam, I just think is an incredibly, he's such a brilliant actor, and he chooses such exciting roles as well. And he, I just, I think he was amazing in it, and India as well, who, who I'm a massive, massive fan of. And you know, she, Lucy, who is the the daughter of the Clark family, who who has sort of been forgotten about. Both of her parents have kind of, uh, you know, buried their grief in work and, and exercise and just finding any break they can from having to deal with like the raw emotions that they're going through. And they're all in their own sort of separate compartments in this house. And she's the rebellious teenager who, you know, and, and you never want that to be a cliche, but she, she, she was so truthful in her portrayal of that. And like, it, it, just, just trying to trying to feel something, trying to get attention is a really reductive way of looking at it. But you know, trying to to make her parents see her again, and she was she was so brilliant. And I mean, like you said, she's she's brilliant in everything she does. And I'd never seen her do anything like this that was so sort of complex. And 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 she she nailed it. I mean, she was absolutely brilliant in it. I think it's really superb performance. The setting from the town where it actually takes place to the beauty and interesting architecture. It really makes a terrific playground for this story. And it does something tangible to the senses. There's a really rich and defined dark color palette. The look of India's character, for instance, and how she looks and her makeup, it soaks right into this world. What thoughts were behind the very specific world building for this? I think I think it sort of started with the Clark House. That was kind of our genesis point for a lot of what came from it. We sort of had this idea, the cinematographer, the brilliant cinematographer, Michael Merriman and Jeremy Stanbridge, who was our production designer, did this fantastic, fantastic job. We, we wanted to look to the house to be this sort of gilded cage, this kind of prison and this, you know, there to be a very obvious choice in, in what we were portraying, that money and success and all of these things they can't bring you happiness. They can't bring you 
back together. Like, so what we wanted to do was create this, this coldness and this, this sense of almost like an inverted haunted house. Like the idea that this house was so precise and obsessively neat. And it was a really beautiful house in, in Squamish, just outside Vancouver, where we shot it. And we sort of, they were lots of lovely people. <laughs> we sort of stripped all the love out of it. And we wanted it to have this sort of prison feel. You know, we, we loved the fact that it was very geometric and there were sort of these frames within frames we could play with. There were lots of, you know, sort of squares of glass, huge panes of glass that created this sort of weird sort of prison-like sense to it and, and doorways that, that sort of we used to frame the characters. And, and it sort of transcended everything, even the way that we sort of shot, you know, shot the actors. Like we wanted, we did lots of clean singles. We wanted them to sort of kind of sit in their own space, kind of amputated from one another. Like, you know, the, that they were all, you got the feeling that there was sort of this level of discomfort and mistrust in the family in the cinematography. And I mean, um, where we shot British Columbia, I mean, it's, it's so beautiful. It's so stunning. And it's got this kind of weirdly kind of Gothic feel about it. These sort of mists that roll in off the Pacific and hit these kind of big sort of jagged hillsides, you know, covered in the green and these amazing like green trees and, we really wanted to lean into that. Um, so it was that combination of a kind of muted, cold colour palette and, and then this sort of, you know, huge kind of sort of primordial world of the Pacific Northwest as well. Like, yeah, I guess, I guess they, were, they were things that really came to mind like when we, were, when we were trying to decide how we wanted to do it. Right. And then there's a really very specific sonic personality of the film as well. And the idea behind these swelling, there's like otherworldly sounds and strings and it's organic, but it also feels alien, if that makes sense. What were you talking to the composer about and what path were you guiding him down? It's so like music is like so subjective, right? Like it's and, and, and sometimes Mark Marlon Espino, who's the composer, like he has this incredible sense of story. Like he's got no vanity like it's all in service of story and he there was a lot that we wanted to do um that we wanted to really be uh, you know sort of in in uh, what's the word i'm looking for to sort of follow the emotional heartbeat of the characters which you know music always tries to do but i think there was this sense of gnawing dreads that we wanted to permeate the movie and particularly around philip uh, casey's character philip whose world sort of slowly falls apart after James arrives and, and all of these kind of odd and, and sort of eerie things, very unnerving things begin to happen to him as his life begins to sort of disintegrate. And we wanted to, we wanted to sort of, without being too overbearing to be able to convey that to the audience. And, you know, we, we, the characters had their themes, but at the same time, we, we wanted those themes to kind of poison one another. We talked about that quite a lot, like the idea that, especially around, you know, some of the bigger moments, like sort of, you know, psychological breakdowns are very emotive moments, like that, that those themes would kind of run into one another in an in a, in a almost melodic, melodic, but kind of ungainly way. You know, I think, I think that, that we, we used like a, an almost completely classical palette. So it was very melodic. It was very string and um, very string and piano led, but I guess we tried to use that in a, in a more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of uh, something that was more modern, that was more kind of in keeping with the psychology of the characters rather than just sort of 
pushing the story forwards. Oh, beautifully said. There's a scene in the car uh, where Philip visualizes himself carrying out a violent act, which made me think that perhaps he revealed this uh, violent past to his patient Daphne in a very unorthodox method of therapy. Is there a treatment or backstory to Casey's character that perhaps reveals his mysterious past? Do you know, I'd, I'd never... It's so interesting you had that reading, and I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear that because that wasn't... Well, I, that, that, that wasn't what we were, were aiming for with that moment. Um, Casey, uh, Richard Lewis, the producer, and I talked about that a lot because we really wanted to, we sort of wanted to push the idea that Casey, uh, Philip's breakdown had reached the point of, of almost mania. And uh, we utilized, we wanted to kind of create this, this, um, this almost imagination space, this like dark fantasy that this kind of buttoned down, slightly preppy, very, uh, sort of introverted man, like sort of, you know, suddenly like is is capable of. I think that was more what was driving us than the idea that that he that he had revealed something to Daphne. Though I could, I think that's a really really interesting read on that. Leo. Really, I, I wish I'd have just said yes. That's absolutely what we were trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> on crafting the uh, tensions in the film between Casey and Sam, or say in the final act. How much of that was uh, from the script directly and how much came from the actors improvising? I mean, it was a great, David's script was a great script. Like it, it there was a, the, the basis of it was definitely there. Um, but both Casey and Sam are such instinctual actors, you know, they, it would, for, for me, what I try and do is I, I try and, I try and rehearse enough and, and that we have enough of a plan that when we, when we get to set, you get room for moments of improvisation and inspiration and you can sort of, set the actors free like they can really you know we create the structure within which they can sort of blow the doors off right and i think like having those two like circling each other kind of like you know there's a particularly one scene where where they sort of almost see each other properly for the first time when he when uh, philip is telling sam to leave him alone uh, so james leave him leave his family alone and james gets him to bizarrely move a couch which becomes more important later in the film the way that those two sort of approached it i mean it was it was the undercurrent the the sort of that that sort of underpinning of of tension that that drove it was was amazing. I mean, we talked about we talked about Cape Fear actually as as a reference. Like that that was a big touch point for for the three of us. That you know, as you sort of watch watch it unravel, and you know who the villain is. It's like nailed on who the baddie is. There's no there's no surprise in Cape Fear. That's what makes it almost more terrifying. It's it's watching the machinations of of mania play out, right? And that's that was something that we really wanted to do. Casey, Sam, and I. Vaughn, man, thank you so much for your time. We're getting the rap single. I know you got a, another interview after this, so we got to let you go. But it's yes. been an absolute delight to talk to you, man. And we absolutely love yes. the film and can't wait to see more of your work, man. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, really, it's been a pleasure. It's been so nice to have a really fun conversation. <laughs> I've really enjoyed this conversation. <laughs> Us as well. Us as well, Vaughn. Oh, All right, man. Enjoy so the rest of your day and let's do this again. Absolutely. Keep well, guys. Awesome. Thanks so much. Take, Take it care. easy. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 215. Special thanks to our guests, India Isley, Von Stein, and Sam Claflin. At time of release, check out every breath you take 
in select theaters and premium VOD now. Production tracks for this one provided by Power Man 5000. Till next time, it is a boot crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand. Chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation. Part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGTBQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out, and we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.